Good morning. Welcome to NTD. Here are our top stories. Another attack on international shipping by Houthi terrorists near the Red Sea as Israeli forces say they're closing in on northern Gaza's last two Hamas strongholds. President Biden says U.S. military aid will be provided to Israel until they get rid of Hamas. And he promises to be unrelenting until every hostage is free. We have takeaways from the White House Hanukkah reception. Special counsel Jack Smith moves to bypass former President Trump's appeal over presidential immunity. More on the Supreme Court signal to weigh in and its order for Trump to respond. Over in Iowa, Trump support is growing. A local poll says most Republican caucus goers choose Trump as their top pick. But are any of the other candidates polling closer? NTD's Arlene Richards dives in. Are third-party alternatives becoming a more viable option during this year's presidential election? We get answers from an Epic Times political correspondent. The Missouri Attorney General is launching an investigation into a media group accusing it of fraud and bullying tactics against advertisers on the social media platform X. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Welcome to NTD. Today is Tuesday, December 12th. Today's top news starting with the latest in the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's military says it has destroyed a Hamas rocket launch post and a weapons factory in northern Gaza. The IDF says the post was used to launch rockets on the Israeli city of Sterat during the October 7th terrorist attack. The IDF reports around 250 rockets, shells, RPGs, and other weapons were found in the weapons factory, along with military equipment. The Israeli military also shared footage of a mosque in the Jabalia refugee camp showing a room used by terrorists for RPG training. The video also shows weapons uncovered, including rifles, grenades, and cartridges and magazines. Some, the IDF says, were found inside UNRWA bags. The U.S. says Houthi terrorists attacked a Norwegian flag tanker in the Red Sea yesterday. A missile fired from Yemen hit the ship and started a fire. According to U.S. Central Command, it says no U.S. ships were nearby at the time, but that a Navy destroyer was sent to help. The Iran-backed terrorist group took credit for the attack. A Houthi spokesman says it's acting in support of Palestinians. No casualties were reported. And to discuss the current situation in Gaza, we're bringing in live Arye Lightstone. He's the former ambassador to the U.S. He's the former advisor to the U.S. ambassador to Israel. Arye, it's great to have you with us here. Doesn't seem like the IDF is stopping its advances and can be stopped at this point. And it's closing in on the Hamas stronghold in southern Gaza and Khan Yunus. Is Hamas cornered at this point? Uh, Hamas is not cornered, but Hamas certainly is. Uh, backed into a corner. Uh, Israel has done an excellent job of cutting off the North Gaza from South Gaza, but because they have 500 miles of tunnels under all of Gaza, it's almost impossibly stuck in one specific place because these tunnels are truly unknown. Right. They have certain back doors, of course. And is there any possibility of them bleeding out into Egypt through tunnels? Yeah, absolutely. There are clearly tunnels that go into the Egyptian 
territory. That's how many of the missiles and rockets and other weapons have gotten in over the last 15 years. Uh, Egypt has its own problems with internal security. Certainly their external security is not fantastic. Uh, Palestinian civilians find it very difficult to evacuate into from Gaza into Egypt. But I'm positive that Hamas terrorists have the ability to go in and out with much greater ease. So this phase of the war requires new tactics. Of course, we've seen more urban combat than in the initial stages where airstrikes were predominantly used. So what are the tactics that the IDF is using at this stage? Well, here you'll find something, I think, unique to modern warfare, where Israel is risking their own soldiers in order to protect Palestinian civilians, contrary to how most of the news is portraying the situation. If Israel wanted to eliminate Gaza completely and totally, they can do so via the air and the sea. But the fact that they're sending their young men door to door, quite literally, and then tunnel to tunnel as well, they're doing that in order to protect Gazan civilians that are being used as um, human shields to protect Hamas fighters. Israel is risking its own soldiers going, as you're watching on this video, going door to door and tunnel to tunnel at great risk to themselves. Now, they're trained for this, they're equipped for this, and they're capable of this, but each and every death of those soldiers was done in order to protect, ironically enough, uh, Palestinians. Yes, we have seen Israel go to great lengths to protect civilians, of course, with their leaflets that they dropped and now, of course, risking their own soldiers. Let's examine the deal that saw Qatar send millions, $15 million into Gaza with Israel's blessing. A lot of people are blaming Netanyahu for his tenure as premier, seeing the deal go through. And that was back in 2018. Partners criticized him for strengthening Hamas, whereas Netanyahu defended it by saying that it was to calm Israeli villages there and to prevent a humanitarian disaster in Gaza. Do you think that this deal is any reason to place blame on Netanyahu for the attacks on October 7th? Well, on October 6th, I read an article about the Yom Kippur War, which took place 50 years prior, that was still assessing blame for how that had occurred. We're going to spend the next 50 years trying to figure out how this happened and why this happened. But just to understand the most fundamental beliefs that people had turned out not to be true. And perhaps the greatest example of that is many of the people who were advanced leads for the Hamas fighters were those with work permits in Israel. When they went door to door and house to house in these kibbutzim, they were guided there by people who had worked there for five, seven, 10 years, were on first name basis with the families. They knew who had a dog, they knew who had a baby, they knew who was on reserves. And, and all of that flew in the face of, if you can only give a better job, if you can only give a better opportunity, so perhaps the Gazans will want to live uh, in side by side in harmony with Israel. This. Uh, fundamental belief has been punctured, perhaps permanently, because of the activities of those who were considered so privileged to be able to work in Israel, where they pulled much higher salaries, had much better quality of life, yet those same people were those who sort of led and directed the intelligence of these attacks against these civilians that had employed them just days before. Well, thank you so much for weighing in on this. Arya Lightstone, former advisor to the U.S. Ambassador to Israel. Thank you. Sharon Aloni Cuneo survived 52 days as a hostage in Gaza with her two little girls before she was released in an Israeli Hamas swap deal. But she fears for her life of her husband, who is still held captive by Hamas. Here's her story. Three days before we were released, they separated David from us. They took him into a different hiding place, and since then, I don't know what is happening to him. 
The girls are torn. I'm torn. He has been my husband for ten years. He's my other half and the love of my life. He's the father of my girls who are asking every day, "Where's daddy? Where's daddy?" I need to explain to them that he's still there. Aloni Cunia was one of 240 people taken hostage on October 7th by Hamas gunmen, who burst through the border with Israel and killed 1,200 people. The militants who attacked her kibbutz set fire to her house and took her away at gunpoint after she climbed out the window. She was taken across the border with her husband David and one of their twins. Their second daughter was held separately in Gaza for 10 days before they were reunited in captivity. Every minute we are waiting is like a Russian roulette. Will they live through the day or not? And the conditions are difficult. Conditions that no one needs to live in, especially not children or adults without medicine. We saw that many have already lost their lives in captivity. So each moment is critical, and we need to do everything to put the aim of releasing all hostages prior to anything else. Aloni Cunio said her group of hostages were held above ground and moved a few times, but with memories still raw and with her husband still inside, she declined to go into details. A seven-day truce saw more than 100 hostages released. The rest are still being held as Israel bombards Gaza, vowing to take out Hamas. Now back at home with her twin three-year-olds, Julie and Emma, Aloni Cunio pleads for the remaining 137 hostages to be freed. There's a lot of families without a father, without a daughter, without a brother, without a grandfather, grandmother, mother. Everyone had. It's like 138 families there. They need to come back now. You have to do everything you can to bring them back now. President Biden, remaining strong on support for Israel, says the U.S. will provide military aid until, in his words, they get rid of Hamas. Biden called his commitment unshakable at last night's Hanukkah reception at the White House. He also cautioned about volatile public opinion. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the White House reception last night. President Biden at the White House reception, celebrating the fifth night of Hanukkah Monday night, called the Jewish tradition a timeless story of miracles. A flame of faith that endures from tragedy to persecution to survival and to hope. The president calling on all Americans to make clear that there's no place for hate in the U.S. against Jews, Muslims, or anybody else. The surge of anti-Semitism in the United States of America and around the world is sickening. You know, we see it across our communities and schools and colleges and social media. They surface painful scars from millennia to hate of hate to genocide of the Jewish people. The reception hosted by Biden featured some 800 guests, including Holocaust survivors, lawmakers, and various Jewish leaders. The commander-in-chief has faced some criticism over his support, but continues to assert U.S. commitment to Israel's security and the safety of the Jewish people. But we have to be careful. They have to be careful. The whole world's public opinion can shift overnight. We can't let that happen. Biden highlighted the administration's work to secure the release of hostages still being held by terrorists in Gaza. The White House says eight U.S. citizens remain unaccounted for: seven men and one woman. Four Americans have been released so far: a four-year-old girl and three women. The U.S. believes 19-year-old American-Israeli citizen Itay Chen is one of those still being held. The IDF reservist kidnapped during the October 7th terrorist attack.
Chen's father, Ruby Chen, told CNN that families of American hostages visiting Washington, D.C. this week were not invited, even after reaching out to the White House and asking to attend. Chen says he wonders what the U.S. government is doing to bring the hostages back, and that he expects them to fulfill their duty to bring U.S. citizens home. Some of the hostages' families feel the U.S. is not being creative enough, citing deals made with Russia outside the agreement primarily negotiated by Qatar. Biden says the U.S. won't stop until every last one is home. The president emphasized his commitment to press Israel on the need to protect civilian life, and says the U.S. will continue to lead the world in humanitarian aid to innocent Palestinians. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Harvard University's Alumni Association announced their unreserved support for President Claudine Gay on Monday. Gay faces possible removal for failing to denounce threats of violence against Jewish students during congressional testimony last week. The growing support from Harvard's community could mean Gay will survive intense pressure to resign or be fired by school leadership. A petition signed by hundreds of faculty members praised Gay's communication skills with the community, alumni leaders, and supporters. Another letter signed by more than 800 black alumni commended Gay's commitment to fighting anti-Semitism, Islamophobia, and racism. Gay apologized last week for her testimony. However, members of Congress, donors, and other prominent leaders have called for her resignation. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to meet with Senators, House Speaker Mike Johnson, and President Biden today. This visit to Washington comes as Congress stalls on a funding bill that has aid earmarked for Ukraine. Over a year has passed since Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Zelensky is making his third trip to the U.S. since the start of the war. He wants the U.S. to pass an aid package that would, in part, provide billions to Ukraine. Many Republicans are pushing back, saying major concessions are needed to address the surge of illegal immigrants crossing the southern border. Some on Capitol Hill say it's unlikely a deal on immigration will be reached before senators leave the Hill for the holidays. Special Counsel Jack Smith is asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on his January 6th case against former President Trump. He wants to skip Trump's appeal process over presidential immunity to try and keep the March 4th trial date on track. Smith wants the high court to decide if Trump is immune to alleged crimes committed while in office. District Judge Tanya Chutkin ruled Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution. Trump asked a federal appeals court in Washington to reverse her ruling. The Supreme Court says it will expedite Smith's request. It's given Trump until Wednesday next week to respond. Trump says racing to the Supreme Court is a Hail Mary move by Smith. The trial in March starts a day before Republicans' Super Tuesday primary elections in over a dozen states. In a court filing yesterday, Smith revealed he plans to use some of Trump's cell phone data from his time in office as evidence in the case. The special counsel intends to call a witness who extracted and reviewed the data. And coming up over in Iowa, Trump support is growing. A local poll says a majority of Republican caucus goers chose Trump as their top pick. But are any of the other candidates pulling closer? Rudy Giuliani's lawyer says it could be the end for his client if Georgia election workers receive damages they're requesting. We look at the lawsuit against the former New York City mayor. Are third-party alternatives becoming a more viable option during next year's presidential election? We get answers from an Epic Times political correspondent in just a moment.
Welcome back. A frightening scene in New York yesterday as an apartment building partially collapsed. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the disaster, which sent firefighters scouring the mound of rubble to ensure no one was trapped. A seven-story corner of a Bronx apartment building collapsed Monday afternoon, leaving apartments exposed like a museum display, with furniture and even art on walls visible for all to see. Firefighters shined bright lights into apartment windows from high ladders and used at least one drone to peer in. Others carted away rubble in buckets and used circular saws to cut through the collapsed scaffolding, while an excavator clawed through the debris. This fire department video appears to show a store caved in. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says officials spoke with a store owner. Our preliminary information with the owner of the store that everyone that was in the store is out at the time. Fire Department Chief John Hodgins said they immediately evacuated the building and began concentrating on the debris pile in front of it. Our main objective is to get to the bottom of that pile. We'll be here until it's we're down to the street level just to make sure if there are any victims under there, hopefully we could get to them in time. Firefighters here searched the rubble looking for any signs of life. Fire Commissioner Laura Cavanaugh said they were on the scene in under two minutes with specialized training and resources deployed. We have our canine unit here helping us search for potential victims. Those canines got a little help from some high-tech dogs as well. Officials say an investigation into the partial building collapse is underway. The New York Times reported that the building's owner was given an over $2,000 fine just last month for deteriorated and broken mudsills, which are a type of building support. The report read that the problem could compromise the structural stability and cause a possible collapse. According to building department records, the building has nearly 50 apartments. No deaths or serious injuries were reported from the collapse. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Former President Trump is the top pick among Iowa Republicans. A local poll shows the majority of likely caucus goers would pick him over the other Republican nominees. And today's Arlene Richards has the details. For the first time in Iowa, support for former President Trump jumped about 50 percent in December. The Des Moines Register NBC News Mediacom poll, considered to be the most accurate poll in Iowa, finds Trump with 51 percent support among likely caucus goers. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is a distant second at 19 percent, and Nikki Haley follows closely in the third position at 16 percent. The poll surveyed about 500 likely Republican caucus goers. It was conducted December 2nd to 7 and has a margin of error of plus or minus 4.4 percentage points. Support for Trump is up from 43 percent in an October Iowa poll. DeSantis only picked up three points. He hasn't made measurable momentum in the Iowa race despite receiving an endorsement from the state's governor or after his debate with California Governor Gavin Newsom. With Trump the clear frontrunner, DeSantis and Haley seem to be in a race for second place. DeSantis criticized his second place rival's campaign messaging at a recent event in Iowa. Uh, you can't have Hawkeye Haley here saying she's conservative and then uh, more nuanced Nikki appealing to independents and, and liberals in New Hampshire. Uh, that doesn't work. You've got to have the same message everywhere. 
Haley jumped to 16% between August and October. Her support grew from 6% following well-received debate performances. In recent weeks, she snagged a major endorsement from Americans for Prosperity Action, part of the Koch brothers' political network. Yet she didn't get a boost in the most recent poll. At a recent Iowa rally, Haley took shots at Trump. So there's chaos all around us, but what I know is you don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos. And that's what Donald Trump gives us. According to an analysis of state polling averages conducted by website Race to the White House, the Republican Party is on track to win 301 electoral college votes in the 2024 presidential election, far exceeding the 270 that's needed to win. President Biden is projected to win 235 electoral college votes. Arlene Richards, NTD News. New Hampshire resident Tyler Anderson has been charged with sending threatening messages targeting GOP presidential candidate Vivek Ramaswamy. Last week, Anderson received a text message publicizing a campaign event. He allegedly responded with a text saying, quote, great, another opportunity for me to blow his brains out. A spokesperson for Ramaswamy confirmed to Axios that he was the targeted candidate. The FBI said they found additional threatening text messages on Anderson's phone dated on or around December 6th. They were allegedly sent to a different presidential candidate. An opening statements began Monday in the case against Rudy Giuliani involving two former Georgia election workers. Ruby Freeman and Wandra Moss were suing him for claiming they stuffed ballots in the 2020 presidential election. Giuliani spoke to reporters outside the court on Monday and said his testimony will prove he was right. Whatever happened to them, which is, it's unfortunate if other people overreacted, but everything I said about them is true. Of course I don't regret it. I told the truth. They, they were engaged in changing votes. There's no proof of that. Oh, you're damn right there is. Stay tuned. The former New York City mayor has already been found liable in the defamation lawsuit. The trial will determine the amount of damages. Giuliani's attorney admitted in court Freeman and Moss suffered harm, but he argued his client isn't the only person who made such claims. He also said the up to $43 million the pair is seeking is way too much. Who do you want to see in the White House? Is it one of the frontrunners like President Biden or former President Trump? Or is it an independent? Third parties are making their case for an alternative, as polls show many Americans don't want to see a rematch between the two. We'll learn more about this from Joe Gomez, a political correspondent for the Epic Times. Well, I think that the, the consensus, and I've talked to the Libertarian Party, the People's Party, uh, the Greens, uh, and also the No Labels uh, campaign, which has been actively trying to, uh, you know, try to get uh, Joe Manchin, Senator Joe Manchin, to run, but the the consensus is that they believe that the, you know, the it, it's the establishment that's presently running things, and that Joe Biden, President Joe Biden, is too old, and that uh, there also needs to be an alternative to uh, President Donald Trump, and so this is where you know all these third party spoilers can come out of the woodwork, and we've already seen quite a few. Uh, you know, former Congresswoman Liz Cheney of Wyoming, uh, Nick Cheney's daughter, has come out and said that she is fostering a third-party bid. Um, there's also uh, just recently uh, Senator uh, Joe Manchin, who is a Democrat, saying that he's thinking about 
running as a third party candidate. And then you also have some announced independent candidates as well, like Robert uh, Kennedy Jr. and so forth. I mean, so so there's there's a lot of third party action out there. And you have to wonder what how, how is that going to play out? How is that going to change the dynamic of the presidential field? Yes, a lot of third-party players in there. Let's talk about the Green Party. Cornell West, he recently dropped out of the Green Party. But let's say there's a little bit of concern as to whether or not he might actually take a little bit of the vote away from President Biden. As you say, there are a lot of different perspectives out there. So what do you make of this? Well, I mean, that happened uh, previously with Dr. Stein when she was running as a Green Party candidate. Hillary Clinton, uh, former Secretary Hillary Clinton, famously said that it was because of uh, Dr. Jill Stein's, uh, uh, her candidacy uh, running on the Green Party ticket that she, she took away votes from her and that led to uh, a Donald Trump being elected president of the United States. So, I mean, and that's still something that the Hillary Clinton campaign maintains or that, you know, that her campaign still uh, sta uh, stands by that, uh, that, that in the fact that the Green Party was, uh, that uh, the Green Party played a spoiler, which is, I mean, maybe it did, maybe it didn't. I don't know. But I mean, but, but if you look at the polling activity, you are seeing a lot of interest right now in independent bids, in third-party bids. More interest, I would say, and I've been covering politics for close to about 10 years, more interest now than I think I've seen uh, ever before. Well, that is interesting, considering the fact that former governor of New Mexico, Libertarian Johnson, he was actually pulling in a lot of support back in 2016, and that was the most since they've seen since Ross Perot back in 1996. So now RFK right. Jr. is another X factor in all this. That Absolutely, yes. And, uh, and, and RFK Jr. Is, is, I mean, he actually is pulling in almost 20 percentage points as an independent. Nobody has seen that since Ross Perot, to your point. So, I mean, could you know? Could any of these candidates really kind of just throw this uh, race into something we haven't seen before, where it could be like not, not just two people running against each other, not just the establishment Democrat and the establishment Republican, but instead we might have like a four-way uh, race going because of all of these new splinter groups in these third-party candidacies. Yeah, and the United States does have this primarily two-party system because of that winner-takes-all approach with the plurality on how the Electoral College works. Joe Gomez, political correspondent for the Epic Times, good talking to you. Thank you. Coming up, the clock is ticking on expiration of federal surveillance laws. The House's plans to extend them collapsed yesterday. And Senator John Fetterman is calling for cooperation from both parties to address the border crisis. We sit down with a Democratic strategist to discuss the details. Representative Bob Good was reportedly elected chairman of the House Freedom Caucus. Find out why his election is not popular with some Trump-supporting caucus members. A flurry of motions requesting the dismissal of Hunter Biden's weapons and tax charges. Hear why his lawyers say those cases should be dropped in just a moment. I'm Arlene Richards here at the U.S. Supreme Court, and we are NTD News. It's good to have you back with us. We're turning our attention to Congress. Senator John Fetterman's saying both parties should address the U.S. southern border together. 
Fetterman told Politico he hoped Democrats understand that it's not xenophobic to be concerned about the border and that his party members should engage in the discussion. Here for some analysis on this is Robert Patillo, a Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney. Good morning, Robert. Thanks for coming on the show. Good morning to you. And does Senator Fetterman's statement foreshadow some bipartisan dialogue that may be happening here on border security? Well, there's been bipartisan dialogue on the Democratic side throughout. If you remember, there was a bipartisan compromise on comprehensive immigration reform starting back in 2013 uh, with Senator Schumer. There was a additional compromise under Obama in 2015 that Republicans walked away from as recently 2018. Remember, there was a February compromise with President Trump. That's where he made his notorious S-hole countries comment uh, when Republicans walked away from that compromise. Uh, there's been a uh, speech by President Biden just last week with regards to Ukraine funding where he uh, basically told Senator, Lang Senator Langford that he is willing, ready, and able to play ball, but Republicans have not come to the table to actually um, put forward any sorts of compromises that can actually get passed. So I think Senator Fetterman is expressing the frustration of much of the Democratic caucus that actually wants to get this done, but wants to get it done in a comprehensive way. Not simply a question of uh, making draconian rules at the border, but also addressing the issue of dreamers, addressing a pathway to citizenship, addressing our H-1B visa program, uh, addressing our asylum programs, addressing the a need for additional judges and lawyers at the southern border, um, being able to have funding to stop the pipeline of migrants coming to, uh, coming across the border by working with our friends and allies within our hegemonic sphere of influence. It has to be has, uh, it has to be a comprehensive uh, a bill put forward, and that's what we're not seeing from Republicans. Right. Very interesting how you mentioned that. And Senator Fetterman's statement here comes as there's about a quarter million encounters in September down at the border, and he reference that to being equivalent to about the city of Pittsburgh showing up every month. Pittsburgh has a population of about 300,000. Do you think that there's any common ground that the two parties are going to find here on immigration enforcement policy? Well, the problem is that there's not two parties. Uh, if you're talking about the traditional centrist Democratic Party and the traditional centrist Republican Party, uh, just look at the text of the 2015 or the 2018 compromises. They were very comprehensive in what they would get done, but it was always the extremists that walked away from it. Right now, you have a, uh, a group of MAGA extremists in the House of Representatives, for example, uh, and some in the Senate who are not willing to work on any comprehensive measures. They simply want to build a wall. That's their only solution to the border issue. And if that's your starting point of negotiations and you're not going to move from there, uh, it becomes very difficult to find any sort of compromise from that positioning. Uh, so the issue is not that there's the two parties that can't get along, but the fact that we have about a four or five party system that have different interests. The, uh, of course, you have the progressive wing of the Democratic Party um, that believes that we, uh, we should be moving closer towards open borders. Uh, you have uh, members of the Republican Party that think that we need to have a medieval wall. And then you have the centrists in the middle uh, who are simply saying, well, let's find a position that we can all come to agree on. Right. And Robert, I wanted to ask you here, H.R. 2 was obviously a sticking point. Speaker Johnson wanted that to be included in the Ukraine aid package, whereas that was a deal breaker for Senate Democrats here. So but when it comes to the border, what are Democrats willing to compromise on and why? Uh, well, I think if you uh, if you look at the text of the 2013 bill, for example, that was a far more conservative bill being a decade ago um, than what many Democrats ran on in 2020 and 2022. Uh, it includes additional funding for the border construction of additional miles of border wall, um, the deportation of people who have overstayed their visas. Um, the, there's many aspects in there that are very similar to what conservatives have called for in the course of the last several years. And I think those are uh, compromise positions Democrats are willing to take. But I think in exchange for that, Republicans 
humans have to be willing to uh, add additional judges to uh, hear asylum claims, uh, put resources in place for asylees to be able to register for and receive legal aid when they come to the border. Uh, also dealing with the issue of dreamers, which has still not been taken care of. Many of these dreamers are now in their 30s and some of their 40s. Uh, uh, dealing with the issue of visas, where uh, making it easier for guest workers to come to this nation to work for, to contribute to our economy, but then to be able to re return home. And I believe also Republicans are very big on this idea of taxing remittances, remittances, where you're taking poor people who come here to work in the fields, to work in our hospitality industry, to work in our kitchens, but then taxing their money that they try to send back home to their families and using that for border security. I think those are some of the sticking points we're going to run into. It is always great hearing your analysis and perspective. Robert Patillo, Democratic strategist and civil rights attorney. Thank you. The House dropped plans to vote yesterday on two different versions of a federal surveillance law. This came after Republicans couldn't agree on which change to the bill would be advanced for a vote. Section 702 of the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act allows the government to collect data without a warrant on foreigners located outside the country. However, it's come under fire for being used to access information on Americans as well. The Judiciary Committee proposed one bill and the House Intelligence Committee proposed a different bill. Both committees agree the surveillance law should be extended. However, the two proposals are quite different regarding privacy protection for Americans. The Judiciary Committee version would drastically limit the law while improving protections for Americans' privacy rights. This version is supported by a coalition of progressive Democrats and allies of former President Trump. The House Intelligence Committee version includes less changes. This plan is backed by moderates and security hawks. While the current bill expires this month, the actual program will run until April 2024. And the House Freedom Caucus has elected Representative Bob Good of Virginia to be its next chairman. Good ran unopposed, according to Politico, which cited sources familiar with the matter. While Good is a staunch conservative, his election isn't without some controversy. He was one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy as speaker earlier this year. He has also faced some skepticism among Republicans for endorsing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump in the 2024 presidential primary. Good was first elected to Congress in 2020. And high stakes items are on the agenda this week on Capitol Hill. A visit from Ukraine's president today and a full House vote to authorize the impeachment inquiry into President Biden. This as his son faces a Wednesday deadline for a closed door testimony before the House Oversight Committee. And today's Melina Wisecup reports. Trying to find evidence that President Biden has knowingly had a hand in his son's foreign business deals has long been the focus of three committee chairmen charged with tracing the facts in the impeachment inquiry into the president. But up until now, the House has not authorized by a full House vote that impeachment inquiry. And this week, that's likely to change with Republican House leadership setting up a vote saying they have the support from their entire Republican conference to get this done, arguing that this is the next step they need to take to get their hands on the evidence that they need, as well as back up their arguments should their subpoenas be challenged in court. They're refusing to turn over 
key witnesses to allow them to testify as they've been subpoenaed. When the subpoenas are challenged in court, we'll be at the apex of our constitutional authority. This comes as Hunter Biden is due for a closed-door deposition this Wednesday. Otherwise, he'll face contempt of Congress charges. Up until now, his lawyers have insisted that he does a public testimony instead of a private one, but the Oversight Committee Chairman James Comer is rejecting that proposal, instead insisting that he comply with the subpoena as it's written now, to the dismay of his Democrat counterpart. He said he doesn't like it because he basically doesn't trust his own members to be able to ask questions effectively. He wants lawyers to do it. Although Comer has left the door open for Hunter Biden to come back and give a public testimony after this closed-door session. Reporting from Capitol Hill, Melina Weiskup, NTD News. Hunter Biden's legal team is asking a judge to toss out his gun charges. Hunter Biden says he already reached a deal on the charges with the Justice Department back in the summer. The Justice Department maintains the deal was never finalized, but Biden's lawyers say the pretrial deal signed by both sides is binding, shielding him from a Delaware gun charge and new California tax charges. Biden's lawyers fired other dismissal motions yesterday. One argues that a federal ban on drug users owning firearms violates the Second Amendment. Another motion argues the special counsel investigation broke the Justice Department's own rules. His lawyers argue the case is selective and vindictive, prosecution driven by Republican pressure. And coming up, a left-leaning media group under investigation by the Missouri Attorney General. We sit down with the host of Entity Business to get the details. And Google loses its landmark antitrust suit brought by Epic Games. Find out what happens next to the tech giant in just a moment. Welcome back. Joining me now is NTD Business host Don Ma to discuss a new investigation launched yesterday into a left-wing media group. Missouri Attorney General Andrew Bailey is probing news outlet Media Matters for America. He says the group used fraud to bully advertisers into pulling out of X. So Don, what's happening here? Now, if you remember, Media Matters did a report that uh, showed pictures of ads appearing next to anti-Semitic content. And then X later accused the outlet of uh, falsifying the report and said that the report mis uh, misrepresented the average user experience. Um, so here's what attorney, the Attorney General uh, of Missouri, uh, Andrew Bailey, said. Um, first of all, he, he says that X is, in his view, is the last free speech platform in America, and he believes that there's reason that the uh, Media Matters outlet uh, may have engaged in unlawful business practices, specifically that the firm deceptively manipulated algorithm on X, um, and that have uh, led to advertisers to pull their support from X, the social media platform. Um, and this, he says, is harming free speech in America because you know X needs advertising in part to survive. And in a letter yesterday, uh, the the lawsuit alleged that. 
um, the report from Media Matters for America falsely uh, suggested that fringe or extremist content would frequently appear next to ads when he says the opposite is, is true. So that's just a brief general overview of what's happening right now. Right, and then Musk said that he was going to launch that thermonuclear litigation exactly. in response to those allegations. But how are people reacting to this new investigation? Well, Elon Musk, of course, uh, he says he's glad, actually, um, in a reaction to the lawsuit. He's glad to hear that this is happening. Um, and he says that, and I'm quoting him now, that media matters. He says it's an evil propaganda machine. Uh, he's also bringing his own lawsuit, as you mentioned, uh, to Media Matters. And according to him, uh, they're actually pursuing the outlet in every country that it operates in, and it's pursuing anyone that's actually funding the organization as well. And Musk, uh, over the weekend, reiterated those two points uh, a couple of times. And, and you know, he it seems like he really doesn't like this media outlet, he said that uh, the media outlet can go to heck. Of course, he used a different word here. Um, I mean, so it seems like he's uh, definitely not uh, have a very positive view with this outlet. So it's, it's not surprising to me that he's glad to hear that this lawsuit is happening. Right, and just to be clear, this is an investigation that Musk is reacting to, not a lawsuit that's brought by Bailey here. Now, let's switch up topics. What's the antitrust lawsuit against Google? Right, uh, and switching topics to that, it seems like Google was dealt a major blow yesterday in its antitrust lawsuit. A federal court jury decided that Google's Android app store has been protected by anti-competitive barriers that uh, harmed smartphone consumers and software developers. Epic Games filed a lawsuit. It accuses Google of abusing its power uh, to shield its Play Store from competition to protect a gold mine that makes billions of dollars annually. And Google collects a commission ranging from 15 to 30% on digital transactions completed within the apps. Uh, now, it's up to a federal judge to decide what steps Google must take to correct its illegal behavior in the Play Store. The judge said you know, he would hold hearings on the issue in January. Well, it seems like a David and Goliath moment, the little guy being able to take down this massive tech giant such as Google. Do you have anything else for us, Don? Sure. Uh, Hasbro as well announced it's going to lay off 1,100 workers. The announcement comes after an earlier reduction of 800 employees. And Hasbro, ha Hasbro had uh, weaker than expected sales in the first nine months of this year. And management expects the problem to potentially continue, actually because some employees will find out this week uh, whether you know, their job has been eliminated while the rest of the layoffs will happen over the next six months. Hasbro's sales uh, fell 10% in the third quarter. The company is known for making toys like Nerf, Transformers, and Play-Doh as well. Oh, if they could have just held out a little longer for the Christmas holiday shopping, probably a lot of toys being sold for those kids. Yeah, I mean, it seems like uh, a lot of companies actually this holiday season isn't hiring as much according to some reports. Ah, that is interesting. Okay, well, host of NTD Business, Don Ma, thank you. Thank you. And we're going to break soon with the retailer Target shuttering stores in major U.S. cities over retail theft. A law professor points out to us that prosecution is not keeping pace with crime. Find out more.
David Zhang in Silicon Valley, California, and we are NTV News. Good to have you back with us. We're going to bring you some business news involving big box store Target. If you visited the retailer recently in big cities, you've probably seen anti-theft enclosures around some of the items. There's a reason for that. I went to the city to investigate some alarming developments about the retailer. Take a look. Target is closing nine stores in major U.S. cities, including New York, with theft being one of the reasons. Organized retail crime is a driving factor, and surveys show that one of the most stolen items is laundry detergent. Let's learn more about this challenge that Target is facing. We paid a visit to Columbia University to speak with law professor John Coffey. He explains some of the reasons for the burdensome retail theft. What I think is the concern recently is this increase in crime is not matched by an increase in prosecution. And why these crimes are not being enforced with old-fashioned law and order techniques uh, testifies to the new relationships between prosecutors and police. I understand at the federal level, prosecutors are not elected. But at the state level, they are elected and they have to please their constituents. And the idea of prosecuting juveniles, 15, 16, 17-year-olds, for what is individually a fairly small criminal act, stealing some T-shirts with or Michael Jordan sneakers, even though they're valuable and can be resold, that's not something that leads authorities to want to put this person in prison. So we have two things going on. We have the common shoplifter, and then we have the organized retail criminal, and they recruit large amounts of these shoplifters to steal right below the felony threshold so they can continue their operations. There may be people using children as their agents. This is the famous plot from uh, a Dickens novel in which Fagin, the evil character, uses children because children will be exempt from things like capital punishment. Okay, uh, And that was seen as a terrible act and Fagin was seen as the true villain. When we look at this retail theft, this is costing stores $112 billion in 2022, and that's projected to rise to $140 billion by 2025. So are laws and regulations keeping up with this trend? Well, I think you have a very good point here, uh, and I think this is partly uh, political infighting. You'll find that some what I'll call progressive district attorneys are more interested in maintaining the faith with their constituents, who may be minority group in large part, uh, and you have others, uh, the business community, and mayors who are worried about uh, uh, major firms leaving, major stores closing, and making the city look like something of an abandoned wasteland. So I think the mayors are concerned about the image, the parents are concerned about their children, and uh, police say, what do we do in the middle? If I arrest someone and the prosecutors won't prosecute, I could be exposed to a lawsuit alleging that I was fa the, the person was falsely arrested and you feel that you're being exposed. Some passers-by in New York share their views on the retail theft. But we're living in a country that people just need a lot of help. A lot of these people who are going into these targets and they're stealing and they're doing these things that they're not supposed to be doing and these things are wrong. But a lot of these individuals are desperate. Not everybody, some people just in it for the bucks. But a lot of these people are desperate and I think that we need to figure out a way to take some of this, some of this weight off of especially, especially middle-class America. One woman shares a message for the thieves. Stop stealing from Target! Her solution to the theft? Hire more security. And solutions for the resale of stolen goods online? More cyber security. 
there should be like more security to like like identify like those things being like resold on like different sites and such. Target CFO said shrink due to theft, which is said to cost the retailer about $500 million a year, remains a significant obstacle for the company. However, Target beat profit expectations for the third quarter. It's about the top of the hour. We're going to start our second part of the broadcast right now. There are real consequences to controlled media. And NTD's founders know them firsthand. Our freedom of thought is the price. This is the lesson that guides us in everything we do. So there's the tear gas there. We know the value of a free society. And we take seriously the responsibility to preserve it. We are NTD. Good morning, welcome to NTD. Here are our top stories. Another attack on international shipping by Houthi terrorists near the Red Sea as Israeli forces say they're closing in on northern Gaza's last two Hamas strongholds. Zelensky is in Washington this week as a funding bill for Ukraine and Israel stalls in the Senate. We dive into the details with a foreign policy expert. President Biden says U.S. military aid will be provided to Israel until they get rid of Hamas. And he promises to be unrelenting until every hostage is free. We have takeaways from the White House Hanukkah reception. A dramatic scene in New York City as an apartment building partially collapses. Robot dogs and drones helped firefighters search for possible victims. Special Counsel Jack Smith moves to bypass former President Trump's appeal over presidential immunity. More on the Supreme Court's signal to weigh in and its order for Trump to respond. We have a heartwarming story of a Christmas tree farm in North Carolina and how the tradition is contributing to the spirit of faith and family. This is NTD Good Morning. Live from our global headquarters, here are Evelyn Lee and Kevin Hogan. Today is December 12th. Today's top news. Welcome to NTD, starting with the latest in the Israel-Hamas war. Israel's military says it has destroyed a Hamas rocket launch post and a weapons factory in northern Gaza. The IDF says the post was used to launch rockets on the Israeli city of Sterat during the October 7th terrorist attack. The IDF reports around 250 rockets, shells, RPGs and other weapons were found in the weapons factory along with military equipment. The Israeli military also shared footage of a mosque in the Jabalia refugee camp showing a room used by terrorists for RPG training. The video also shows weapons uncovered including rifles, grenades and cartridges and magazines. Some of the IDF says were found inside UNRWA bags. 
The U.S. says Houthi terrorists attacked a Norwegian-flagged tanker in the Red Sea yesterday. A missile fired from Yemen hit the ship and started a fire, according to U.S. Central Command. It says no U.S. ships were nearby at the time, but that a Navy destroyer was sent in to help. The Iran-backed terrorist group took credit for the attack. A Houthi spokesman says it's acting in support of Palestinians. No casualties were reported. At least 22 people were killed in Pakistan after a suicide bomber drove a vehicle full of explosives into a security compound. Some terrorists also opened fire toward the building, leading to a shootout with security forces. The death toll is currently at 23 officers with 32 wounded. Pakistan's caretaker interior minister condemned the attack and labeled it as an act of terrorism. The newly formed terrorist group Tahrik-e-Jihad Pakistan, or TJP, claimed responsibility for the attack. TJP is believed to be an offshoot of a group connected to the Afghan Taliban. President Biden, remaining strong on support for Israel, says the U.S. will provide military aid until, in his words, they get rid of Hamas. Biden called his commitment unshakable at last night's Hanukkah reception at the White House. He also cautioned about volatile public opinion. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the White House reception last night. President Biden at the White House reception celebrating the fifth night of Hanukkah Monday night called the Jewish tradition a timeless story of miracles. A flame of faith that endures from tragedy to persecution to survival and to hope. The president calling on all Americans to make clear that there's no place for hate in the U.S. against Jews, Muslims or anybody else. The surge of anti-Semitism in the United States of America and around the world is sickening. You know, we see it across our communities and schools and colleges and social media. They surface painful scars from millennia to hate of hate to genocide of the Jewish people. The reception hosted by Biden featured some 800 guests, including Holocaust survivors, lawmakers and various Jewish leaders. The commander in chief has faced some criticism over his support but continues to assert U.S. commitment to Israel's security and the safety of the Jewish people. But we have to be careful. They have to be careful. The whole world's public opinion can shift overnight. We can't let that happen. Biden highlighted the administration's work to secure the release of hostages still being held by terrorists in Gaza. The White House says eight U.S. citizens remain unaccounted for, seven men and one woman. Four Americans have been released so far, a four-year-old girl and three women. The U.S. believes 19-year-old American Israeli citizen Itay Chen is one of those still being held. The IDF reservist kidnapped during the October 7th terrorist attack. Chen's father, Ruby Chen, told CNN that families of American hostages visiting Washington, D.C. this week were not invited, even after reaching out to the White House and asking to attend. Chen says he wonders what the U.S. government is doing to bring the hostages back, and that he expects them to fulfill their duty to bring U.S. citizens home. Some of the hostages' families feel the U.S. is not being creative enough, citing deals made with Russia outside the agreement primarily negotiated by Qatar. Biden says the U.S. won't stop until every last one is home. The president emphasized his commitment to press Israel on the need to protect civilian life and says the U.S. will continue to lead the world in humanitarian aid to innocent Palestinians. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Harvard University's Alumni Association announced their unreserved support for President Claudine Gay on Monday. Gay faces possible removal for failing to denounce threats of violence against Jewish students during congressional testimony last week. 
The growing support from Harvard's community could mean Gay will survive intense pressure to resign or be fired by school leadership. A petition signed by hundreds of faculty members praised Gay's communication skills with the community, alumni leaders and supporters. Another letter signed by more than 800 black alumni commended Gay's commitment to fighting anti-Semitism, Islamophobia and racism. Gay apologized last week for her testimony. However, members of Congress, donors and other prominent leaders have called for her resignation. A frightening scene in New York yesterday as an apartment building partially collapsed. And today's Daniel Monahan has more on the disaster which sent firefighters scouring the mound of rubble to ensure no one was trapped. A seven-story corner of a Bronx apartment building collapsed Monday afternoon, leaving apartments exposed like a museum display, with furniture and even art on walls visible for all to see. Firefighters shined bright lights into apartment windows from high ladders and used at least one drone to peer in. Others carted away rubble in buckets and used circular saws to cut through the collapsed scaffolding, while an excavator clawed through the debris. This fire department video appears to show a store caved in. New York City Mayor Eric Adams says officials spoke with a store owner. Our preliminary information with the owner of the store that everyone that was in the store is out at the time. Fire Department Chief John Hodgins said they immediately evacuated the building and began concentrating on the debris pile in front of it. Our main objective is to get to the bottom of that pile. We'll be here until it's we're down to the street level just to make sure if there are any victims under there, hopefully we could get to them in time. Firefighters here searched the rubble, looking for any signs of life. Fire Commissioner Laura Cavanaugh said they were on the scene in under two minutes with specialized training and resources deployed. We have our canine unit here helping us search for potential victims. Those canines got a little help from some high-tech dogs as well. Officials say an investigation into the partial building collapse is underway. The New York Times reported that the building's owner was given an over $2,000 fine just last month for deteriorated and broken mudsills, which are a type of building support. The report read that the problem could compromise the structural stability and cause a possible collapse. According to building department records, the building has nearly 50 apartments. No deaths or serious injuries were reported from the collapse. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. Stay with us. Special Counsel Jack Smith moves to bypass former President Trump's appeal over presidential immunity. More on the Supreme Court signal to weigh in and its order for Trump to respond. And we have a heartwarming story of a Christmas tree farm in North Florida and how the tradition is contributing to the spirit of faith and family when we come back. It's good to have you back with us. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is set to meet with Senators, House Speaker Mike Johnson, and President Biden today. This visit to Washington comes as Congress stalls on a funding bill that has aid earmarked for Ukraine. 
Over a year has passed since Ukraine was invaded by Russia. Zelensky is making his third trip to the U.S. since the start of the war. He wants the U.S. to pass an aid package that would, in part, provide billions to Ukraine. Many Republicans are pushing back, saying major concessions are needed to address the surge of illegal immigrants crossing the southern border. Some on Capitol Hill say it's unlikely a deal on immigration will be reached before senators leave the Hill for the holidays. And to get some insight into the meeting between President Zelensky and lawmakers, we're bringing in William Ruger, a foreign policy expert and the president of AIER. William, thank you so much for making the time today. What impact can Zelensky's meeting with congressional leaders have as additional funding for Ukraine has been voted down in the Senate? Yeah, I mean, I don't blame President Zelensky for trying to wrangle Congress uh, and the president for more aid. But one of the con- you know, important parts of the context here is that decli- there's a declining level of support for aid in the American public, particularly on the Republican side and the Republican base. And that's going to be a constraint that President Zelensky is going to have in getting Congress or pushing Congress to deliver more aid. Uh, plus, you know, a lot of the things that the Ukrainians desire in terms of munitions, we simply just don't have available. Right. And where is that GOP resistance coming from? And could any successes on the battlefield change that? Well, even Ukrainian military officials are saying that this war is a stalemate. And so the question is, is whether there's anything on the battlefield that could sway the American public one way or the other uh, that's in reality as opposed to the, in, in the ideals. Right. Ukraine has determined that uh, at least this at this point, that winning means taking back the occupied territories. I don't see that happening anytime soon. And Russia has also had problems pushing on its end. And so one would hope that actually, given that it seems like there's a bit of a stalemate, this would be the time to try to find a path forward to peace. Maybe something similar to talks that happened in uh, early 2022 around making sure that for the Russians, making sure that uh, NATO expansion doesn't happen. And for the Ukrainians, that there wouldn't be further incursions by Russia, that the war would end. And as the war had dragged on, there had been talk of calls for diplomatic solutions to the war. This is about $75 billion that the United States has sent in aid to Ukraine, whether that's humanitarian, military or otherwise. And that's from around the time of the start of the war to this summer. And now it's another $61 billion for Ukraine aid. That's a lot of American money. Does that serve American interests? Well, I've argued for quite some time here that unfortunately for Ukraine, uh, Ukraine doesn't really seriously implicate, implicate America's vital national interests. Uh, uh, you know, the fact that Russia has shown itself to be not very powerful in terms of power projection on the battlefield, that the threat to Western Europe and our allies there is quite minimal and clearly a threat to the American homeland. The biggest threat to the American homeland is actually an escalatory spiral that could lead to a nuclear conflict between the United States and Russia. And that's one reason why the United States has been careful about escalating, about providing more advanced weaponry, because we do fear that something like that could happen. And and that's why we need to proceed cautiously. I think America's best interest would be served by trying to find a peace, like I said, similar to some of the things that have been promoted around the start of the war, including uh, closing closing NATO's open door, uh, which would certainly be a loss to Ukrainian national interests, but it's something that the United States has been loath to give anyway, so we wouldn't be giving up very much. Well, certainly this war has caused NATO partners to 
bolster the defense, especially when the Wagner group was moving into Belarus and so forth. So that was causing them to bolster up on the eastern flank there. Blinken says Ukraine is doing an extraordinary job defending against the Russian invasion. So how badly does Ukraine need U.S.'s support through funding right now? Yeah, I mean, it's hard not to see the great bravery of the Ukrainians in defending their sovereignty from Russia's aggressive attacks. Uh, on the other hand, uh, you know, in, in warfare, uh, particularly attrition warfare, manpower is vital. And the question really is, is can Ukraine uh, deliver the manpower necessary to beat a Russian uh, military that is quite larger, right, in terms of its ability to harness manpower and munitions in the future? Uh, you know, Ukraine would, needs those munitions to continue. The question is, is where are they going to get them? And is it in America's national interest to basically deplete our stockpiles, given other potential challenges in the world? Uh, you know, America's most important strategic challenge is the rise of China. And so it really is a question of what trade-offs we're going to make. What are the defense priorities we're going to make ahead? Well, thank you so much for that excellent analysis. William Ruger, foreign policy expert and the president of AIER. Thank you. Turning now to some domestic affairs, Special Counsel Jack Smith is asking the Supreme Court to weigh in on his January 6th case against former President Trump. He wants to skip Trump's appeal process over presidential immunity to try to keep the March 4th trial date on track. Smith wants the high court to decide if Trump is immune to alleged crimes committed while in office. District Judge Chanya Chukin ruled Trump is not immune from criminal prosecution. Trump asked a federal appeals court in Washington to reverse her ruling. The Supreme Court says it will expedite Smith's request. It's given Trump until Wednesday next week to respond. Trump says racing to the Supreme Court is a Hail Mary move by Smith. The trial in March starts a day before Republicans' Super Tuesday primary elections in over a dozen states. In a court filing yesterday, Smith reveals he plans to use some of Trump's cell phone data from his time in office as evidence in the case. The special counsel intends to call a witness who extracted and reviewed the data. The House Freedom Caucus has elected Representative Bob Good of Virginia to be its next chairman. While Good is a staunch conservative, his election isn't without some controversy. He was one of the eight Republicans who voted to oust Kevin McCarthy as Speaker earlier this year. He has also faced some skepticism among Republicans for endorsing Florida Governor Ron DeSantis over Donald Trump in the 2024 presidential primary. Good was first elected to Congress in 2020. And Google was dealt a major blow yesterday in an antitrust lawsuit. A jury ruled that Google's Android App Store has been protected by anti-competitive barriers. And the barriers were found to harm both smartphone consumers and software developers. Epic Games filed the lawsuit. It accused Google of abusing its power to shield its Play Store from competition to protect a gold mine that makes billions of dollars annually. Google collects a commission ranging from 15 to 30 percent on digital transactions completed within apps. Now it's up to a federal judge to decide what steps Google must take to correct its illegal behavior in the Play Store. The judge said he will hold hearings on the issue in January. And Christmas time is upon us. It's a long-running tradition for many Americans to cut their own tree for the holidays. One Tree Farm in Florida is keeping that alive, but at the same time, going above and beyond. And today's Jack Bradley stopped by over the weekend to take a look. 
This isn't your average tree farm. Turner's Havana Christmas Tree Farm up in Northern Florida is keeping the Christmas spirit alive with live music, a unique gift shop, and nearly 30 acres of property where families enjoy a long-running tradition. Uh, I just kind of look at the trees and think about like which one speaks to me and I usually look for like a flat fluffy, fluffy little guy so this one is nice and fluffy. He's full and I can put a lot of ornaments on him and he's cute. Mm -hmm. And last year we got our tree around here, we got a blue spruce. With roughly 12,000 trees growing on the property, there's no shortage of trees nor customers at this family-owned farm. I love the, the Turner family and the atmosphere out here at the Christmas tree farm. Just kind of fell in love with it and, and for me this is the first time that I've ever actually had a live Christmas tree. Brian Turner and his wife own the tree farm and gift shop. Their family operates it in their spare time. There's a Leland cypress, a Virginia pine, a cedar, and a blue spruce that we grow here. And then we chip in Fraser firs from the Carolinas. So you, get, you grab your pole, it's got a measuring stick, and you get a saw. You can rent a cart from us and, and just ride around, enjoy the day, take pictures. Um, it's a family oriented property. I want you to be able to come here, spend time with your family and make the memories. That's really what it's all about. It's the Turner's second Christmas as owners of the tree farm, but the farm has been around for decades. They purchased it last year from the previous owner who was ready to retire. So the wife and I said, you know, it's a good thing for us to do with our family and um, our family does, we, we go to church together, we worship together, we, we stay together, we, we, we're doing everything together. So um, what a better way to share the word of Christ with everybody together as a family to do ministry on this farm. By purchasing the tree farm, Brian and his family were able to keep this tradition alive. And people have told him so. And she says, well, I've been coming since I was eight years old and I'm 38 today. So for 30 years, she's been coming here getting her Christmas tree. For the Turners, it isn't just about the trees. It's all about God and family. They're coming here to get a Christmas tree. And what is the reason for this season? It's about Jesus. So it's, a, it's an act of kindness. Um, one of the things that we uh, practice in our church is to love God, love others, and live on mission. So you're either doing some kind act for someone or you're showing somebody a, a, a nice gesture or you're doing something good for somebody. That's, that's what it's all about. Ah, there's just something about the smell of fresh pine in your home. And all right, we have to wrap up our show now, but we'll keep you updated with the latest information. Stay tuned for our News Today broadcast at 11 a.m. Eastern Time. Thanks for watching. I'm Kevin Hogan.